I just, I love when things make sense. When things just flow logically and sensibly. And some people in my life would say I love that a little too much. Uh, but I believe that that is the heart of God. I believe God is a God of order. I believe that there's never been so, uh, such a thing as an oops in the heart and the mind of God. There's intentionality in every move he makes. We might not understand it on this side of his infinite wisdom, but there's purpose in everything that God does. And we see that in this new series, Ten Talks, the, the study of the Ten Commandments, that they are not in the order that they are given by accident. Very much on purpose, one flows to the other or relates to the one before or enables it to be possible to fulfill the other. There's this order within these Ten Commandments. And, and we said last week that, that really there's 613 laws in the book of the law. Those are the first five books of the Bible according to the people who've counted them. I've never counted them and don't intend to. But there's, they say there's 613 of them. And, and then here funneled down into the, the mind of God given to His people are, are the, the top ten list here uh, of these Ten Commandments. But even within that we find that there's two distinct focuses Within the Ten Commandments, the first four are very upward focused, our relationship with God. And then the, the last six are very much about our relationship with people, how we interact because of our relationship with God, then what life looks like around us. That's why Jesus would take these 613 commands and then these ten commands, and he would say... When he was confronted, the religious leaders sent an attorney to try to trick Jesus and say, well, which is the most important of those 613 commands? And, and at that time in history, they had actually added another around 400. They say that there was over a thousand commands by the time of Jesus. Which is the most important? And Jesus, they think, maybe will quote from the Ten Commandments. And what Jesus says is it's simply love God and love people, which summarizes all these Ten Commandments. And in that beauty and in that order, we today will start at the beginning with commandment number one. So please grab your Bible if you would today. If you don't have a Bible, there's one uh, underneath the seat in front of you. Uh, and if you don't own a Bible, please let that be our gift to you today. Uh, but we invite you to join with us in our tradition where we hold up our Bibles and say a creed about what we believe this book to be. Let's say this with authority this morning. The Bible is the Word of God. The truth of the Bible will change my life. Lord, open my heart and awaken my mind and give me grace to respond. Change me for your glory and my joy. Amen. Thank you so much. Please turn to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. It's page 57. Uh, if you're using one of those Bibles from the seat in front of you. Exodus chapter 20. And what we're going to do this morning is we're actually going to read all ten of the Ten Commandments just to set the stage. We really focused on, uh, on the intro last week. Uh, we'll get to the first commandment here in just a minute. But we want to go ahead and, and look at an overview of all of them this morning as we're beginning to dive into this series. Verse number one of Exodus chapter 20 says, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am Yahweh, your God. I am, I am. And not just I am, I am yours. That he is who he says he is. He is the God of the universe. He's king, he's Lord, he's boss. And we are his. We belong to him. And last week we looked at, okay, so that's who he is and that's who they are. Well, where are they? He says, I'm the God who brought you out of the, the land of Egypt. He delivered them from Egypt. And so these Ten Commandments are not how we earn our way out of Egypt. 
This is how liberated people continue to live free. This is, this is what it looks like for Egypt to get out of us, not how we earn our way out of Egypt. And then he also says, you are out of the house of slavery. The people of God are free. So we're not earning our freedom. We're not working towards our freedom. We said that the, the salvation, the rescue of God is not the reward for being obedient, but his rescue is our reason for following him and being obedient. It's the motivation to trust him, that we love him enough and trust him enough to obey what he says. And so now we dive in. Commandment number one, you shall have no other gods before me. Commandment number two sounds a lot like commandment number one, so much so that some people think there's just nine Ten Commandments. (laughs) They, They combine number one and number two, but we'll look next week at how it is indeed distinct. But verse number four, you should not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that's in heaven above or in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You should not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Commandment number three, verse seven, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. After commandment number three, we will take a break for a week because uh, it'll be our global missions emphasis weekend uh, there the second Sunday in February. And uh, that, that's an important Sunday. I would say this. This is when we as families uh, hear from God what, what he's leading us in faith to his promises to uh, commit to give towards global missions for the next 12 months. Every penny that's given uh, to global missions leaves this campus and, and goes to the cause of global missions. And, um, and that's a commitment that we do every February. So our, our fiscal year for missions runs the first Sunday in March through the last Sunday in February. And, and I will pause for just a second and say this. Um, when it comes to our general fund giving, our tithes, um, in 2019, um, our giving exceeded our budget. Praise God for that. When it comes to our global missions giving, however, uh, we are currently about $12,000 behind budget of what was committed. Um, And and so I say that today to say, man, if that's something you've been waiting for the right time, uh, now's the time. (laughs) We're we're ready whenever whenever you want to do that. Um, And maybe there's somebody here today who would say, man, I've been faithful to give, but the Lord's blessed us, and maybe we can do a little more to try to help fill that gap um, because we are pretty significantly short right now, $12,000 short of that budget. Um, But we will recommit to the following year or to the next year um, on that Sunday. That's the end of that commercial break. Commandment number four, which we'll pick up the week after. Um, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you, your son, daughter, male servant, female servant, livestock, or the sojourner who's within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. That's the last of the four commandments that relate to our relationship with God. And now that tension goes to what does that mean for how we relate to others. Commandment number five, verse 12, honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. Commandment number six, you shall not murder. Number seven, you shall not commit adultery. Number eight, you shall not steal. Number nine, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And then finally, number ten, you shall not covet. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his 
male servant, female servant, his ox, his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. So that's the overview of the Ten Commandments where we'll be going for the next several weeks together. This morning, we focus on commandment number one, verse three here of Exodus chapter 20. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no other gods before me. It's at the beginning on purpose because this really is the foundation, not just to the other nine commandments. I believe with all my heart that what we will discuss for the next few minutes is the foundation for life, the foundation to flourish, the foundation to experience the plan God has for you. If this is not in order in our heart, we are not postured or positioned to enjoy the life the Lord intends for us. You shall have no other gods before you. And I think, if you're like me, you might would read that and go, I don't have any other gods. Like, I don't even carry a rabbit's foot in my pocket. I don't have any little carved images or voodoo dolls or whatever. What do you mean any other gods before me? What can that possibly mean? When the fact is, I think there's profound implications for us today in 2020. So I want us to, we're going to zoom into some parts of this verse and then uh, draw some conclusions from the end. The first thing I want us to really zone in on is the simple little two letters, N-O. You shall have no other gods before me. This verse does not say, this command does not say, I shall be first among your gods. Now, there are other places in Scripture where, where God uses the language of I must be first place or I must be preeminent in your hearts and minds. But that's not what he's saying here in, in this verse. He's saying, no, I, I'm not to be first. I'm to be only. We just sang the song, the king of my heart, not a king of my heart, one among many. There's only room on the throne of our hearts for one king. And what the creator says is, I'm the only one who's earned the right to sit there. I'm the only one who's earned the right for our allegiance, for our affection, for our attention, for our adoration, for our worship. There's one, no other. And that exclusivity, that intolerance couldn't be less 2020, right? What do you mean no other gods? That is so close-minded, right? Maybe he, God should watch a TED talk about being more tolerant. The fact is, as, as anti-cultural as that might be, that's the only path to life. There is none other. And I, I mentioned last week that the fastest growing religion in the United States of America is the religion of people who either believe there is no God or they're not sure. Right? So the, the, the group of, of people who would say there is no God, we call that an atheistic worldview. And, and what God is saying in this first commandment is, yes, there is, it's me. And because I'm God, I demand to be acknowledged as God. And then that, that secondary worldview that is permeating our culture today is what we would call an agnostic worldview, which doesn't say there is no God. It simply says you can't really know. We can't know if there is, if there isn't, or who it would be if there was. And what God is saying, not only can you know, I'm telling you right now, it's me. I've revealed myself by placing my image on you. I've revealed myself by sending my son. I've revealed myself by creating the world. The heavens declare my glory. I'm revealing myself by giving you a living, breathing word that cuts and divides and shows us reality from lies. He has revealed himself. He is the God of the Bible. 
And then the other kind of mainstream uh, uh, global thought would be that that says, man, God's just on a shelf. And we'll talk more about that uh, next week. God's on a shelf with many other gods. This would be a, a, a polytheistic worldview or a religiously pluralistic worldview that says, listen, God's whatever you want him to be. There's tons of gods. Who am I to judge? And here God's saying, no, there's one. There's only one true God. And then we have the, the, the majority world that, that, that has a pantheistic worldview that sees God in nature. God is in everything. And, and what God is saying is, no, I created everything under my own authority and I uphold the universe by the word of, word of my power, but it is only a reflection of me. I am God. Right? You shall have no other gods before me. Here's ultimately what he is saying. When it comes to our hearts, there can be no competition. He will not fight for our affection. He won't try to be noticed, try to be loved. He's God. And he, therefore, is worthy of our only praise, of our only worship. We must worship him alone. And the next nine commandments only make sense if we are all in for who he says he is. The rest of our life being ordered by being centered on God won't make sense if he's not the center. And the problem is, we, we think this is this out-of-date thing. We think this is this old-school thing. As a matter of fact, if we look at the next two words, right? No other gods. And we think of the concept of other gods. And we think of this time in history, right? And remember, the people of God just exodus. They just exited Egypt. Where there's tons of gods, hundreds of gods that we know of now that we have found through archaeological digs. We don't know how many were actually there. But we know of hundreds. As a matter of fact, Pharaoh himself thought he was God. I mean, what must it be like to have a political leader who thinks he's God? (laughs) I'm sorry. Um, See, that wasn't in my notes. I need to stick to my notes. Pharaoh himself thought he was God. And they had Baal and they had Asherah and they had Molech and all these gods, right? As a matter of fact, in in biblical times, the way that you showed honor to another culture was you were like, hey, what gods do you have? Let's compare gods. Oh, I like that God. I'm going to add him to my list. See how much I like you. I'm taking your gods and I'm going to worship that God too. And, And when we look at that way of life, when we look at that cultural practice, we are tempted to practice, I love this, what C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery. Chronological snobbery, a phrase that actually sounds snobbish, right? Chronological snobbery is we look backwards and go, oh, how primitive, right? I can't believe that they prayed to the sun. Don't you know that's how you go blind? Like, you know, we we look backwards and think we're so advanced we would never do that, right? We would never be that uh, simple-minded. We would never be that out of touch with reality. Thank God we're not that. And, And the reality is that that is chronological snobbery because... When we are reminded why they worshipped other gods, so many of them, I'm telling you that there's there's a reality check for us today. Because the reason they worshipped those other gods was not for their glory. They worshipped those other gods for what they could get from them. Hang, Hang with me here. They didn't worship those gods because they thought they were worthy to be praised. 
They worshipped those gods because they were told that God had something to offer them that they wanted. Which means they were ultimately worshipping themselves. They did not worship the God or the goddess of sex because that God was worthy to be praised. They worshipped the God or goddess of sex because they wanted more sex. They didn't worship the God or the goddess that controlled the weather because they thought that God was worthy to be praised. They wanted the weather to be good so that their crops would grow so they could sell them at the market and make more cash. Okay, they didn't have cash back then. Right? They were worshiping themselves. At the end of the day, they they worshiped these many different gods because they wanted more fame. They wanted more money. They wanted more pleasure. They wanted more comfort. They wanted more fertility. They wanted more children. They wanted more power. They wanted more protection. Right? Safety was so important. I've got to keep my kids safe. So I'm going to worship this God. And when we think about it from that perspective, all of a sudden it doesn't seem so outdated because how many in our culture worship those same things? We we worship our own pleasure, our own comfort. We worship the safety of our kids. We worship the bubble that we think we're wrapping them around. We worship our own satisfaction. And, and, And we don't call it molech. We call it financial security. We don't call it Baal. We call it a nice house. We don't call it Pharaoh. We call it the politician that's going to fix everything. And I love what Driscoll said. He said, all Satan has done is rebranded old demons. He's just rebranded old demons. We think it seems so dignified. And what it really is, is it is a worship war. It's a worship war against other false gods, lesser gods. For the throne of our hearts. If anything else is going to make sense, if anything else is going to fall in order, then there shall be no other gods before him, him alone at the center. And so now we zoom in. So the concept of no other gods, there's exclusivity in this. These other gods, meaning the subtle ways our hearts are prone to worship. And now we look at the, the phrase before me. Before me, which comes from a singular one Hebrew word that's a difficult word to translate into English. And so theologians have debated, what does before me really mean? Does it mean in front of me? And there's two ways it could mean in front of me, before me. It could be in front of me, like to my back, like I'm following him, it's leading me. Or it could be before me, facing me, like my gaze is transfixed. That's good old hymn language there. That my, my, my focus is given away to this. No other gods... Lead me, no other gods have my focus. But ironically, even though it says before me, that same word can actually be translated alongside of me. What we would say next to me or, or a partner, a companion with me. Maybe that's what it means. Or they say before me could have been translated truly a, a replacement. That he's saying there's no other, don't take me as your God and remove me and put another one there instead of me. That could be what beside me means, is instead of me. And then the, the last train of thought among Hebrew scholars is maybe it means against me, in conflict with me, right? Like there shall be no other gods before me, like as in face to face, right? Or like nose to nose or chest to chest, bowing up. No other gods in conflict with me for my adoration. And so the question to us today is, which one of those does he mean? 
Does he mean no other God should lead you? Does he mean no other God should have our attention? Does he mean no other God should be our companion? Does he mean no other gods should replace him on the throne of our hearts? Does he mean no other God should be in conflict for his adoration? Yes. I think he means all of that. That no one else owns our heart. No one else is the center of our hearts. I believe it means all of that. And the best description, several uh, different authors and, and pastors that I read use this analogy, and I think it's a great analogy. And, and I mean this very respectfully and, and graciously. I, Maurice and I celebrated 20 years of marriage this past August. I thank God for her. But I want you to imagine for a moment that she comes to me and says, hey, it's been a great 20 years. Life's good. I just think it would be better if we weren't exclusive. I mean, I want to keep this going. I just, there's this other man or, well, actually, okay, there's a group of men that have some other things that I just think would make me more complete. Y'all complete me, right? And so, what do you think? Would you be okay with that? Now, let me ask you, Doug, she's still speaking here, where do you want those other men? Do you want them before you? Do you want them to be your focus? Do you want them alongside you? Do you want them to replace you? Do you want them to be in conflict with you? And my answer to that is, who? (laughs) Just kidding. We do not promote violence. Um, And all I'm thinking while she's talking is, I hope that dude's not bigger than me, because I'm fixing to throw down, right? Dougie's fixing to die, but I'm going to go out with a fight. Like, what do you mean? I don't want those dudes anywhere before me. What? Before my foot? Like, no. Because I love her. And in the same way, I think what what God is saying to us is, I will not be shared. I will not be part of your heart. I will be yours and you will be mine. Or else you don't understand what it is to follow me. And I believe our culture is full of divided affection. I believe we live in a day that is full of love for wealth and pleasure and possessions and God. And I believe he says, if you want to enjoy my life and submit to me as your God, there can be none other. There can be no one else before me. This is the heart of Jesus when he talked about the first commandment, love God and love people, Jesus quoted from the Shema, a passage of scripture we talk about a lot here from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. Verse 5 says, you shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. By the way, and then he tells us to teach the next generation to do that, which is what we'll talk about next week. That all in, wholehearted, you are the king of my heart. You own my adoration. You own my affection. You own my allegiance. And by the way, you know, Jesus funneled the 613 commands or a thousand or whatever it was down to those two. But Jesus really could have just said this one. Because, friend, if we love God this way, we will love the people who bear his image, too. This really is the heart of everything. Do we love God with that kind of reckless abandon? That wholeheartedness, that that begging and pleading, God, I know I love other stuff. Please set me free from those lesser things. 
to love you more than anything else. To love God. And it just makes sense. Because if Jesus is the center, then it makes sense that we would allow him to speak into how we worship him and how we use his name and how we take care of ourselves and how we relate in our marriages and sexually and financially and even with our real estate and our relationships. It makes sense if he's the center that his truth would flow into all of those nine areas. Is he the center of it all? And the question that rests on our hearts this morning is who or what do we truly live for? Who or what do we truly live for? Do we live for our spouse? Do we live for our career? Do we live for possessions? Do we live for our hobbies? Do we live for pleasure? Do we live... And this is huge in American culture today. Do we live for our kids? And maybe you would hear that and say, but Doug, those are all good things. And I would say, friend, hear my heart today. Any good thing that becomes a God thing is a bad thing. Is a deadly thing. Is a dangerous thing. When good things that come from God replace Him in our affection and in our focus and in our centrality, we are no longer on the path that leads to life. We are no longer living a life that leads towards flourishing. Nothing can replace Him. Which, which points us towards a phrase that we use a lot here. It points us towards... A concept that we see a lot here, and it begins in, really, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus talks about how easy it is for us to fret, and how easy it is for worry, and all the stuff of life. And then he says, listen, listen, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. If we truly live for Him then all this stuff we fret about will be under His order. Now, maybe not in the timing we want or in the way that we want, but we will trust Him and love Him in such a way that we'll follow His instruction. Seek Him first. And that's the first command because He is good. This is not an insecure dictator saying, you better not like anybody other than me. This is a loving Father saying, listen, I know the path that's best for you because I already cleared the path. Which leads to the phrase you hear me say a lot. Only Jesus can satisfy the longings of the human heart. Only Jesus can satisfy the longings of the human heart. Everything else might satisfy for a moment, might promise something it can't deliver, only Jesus. And what the first commandment screams to us, church, is don't live for lesser things. Don't sell yourself short. The God of the universe has done too much to provide too much for us to cheat ourselves by living for lesser things. Don't live for gifts. Live for the giver. Don't be centered on the prize. Be centered on the greatest prize, the greatest giver of gifts, the God of the universe.
He alone can satisfy the longings of our heart. And now maybe we hear that and we think, wait a second, the Ten Commandments don't mention Jesus. Ten Commandments were given long before Bethlehem and the angels and all that. They haven't had Christmas yet. Where's Jesus in this? How does this point to Jesus? Well, here's the thing. And the answer to that, first of all, is everything points to Jesus. Just like in Sunday school, he is the answer to every question. But the second answer to the reason I think it's Jesus is because he said so. Luke recorded in his gospel, chapter 22, verse 42, Jesus is speaking to a group of his followers. And he said, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. So that everything written about who? About me in the law of Moses. P.S. and the prophets. P.P.S. and the Psalms. Might be fulfilled. Jesus said, listen, all this pointed to me and I came to fulfill it. Every bit of scripture points towards Jesus. What he would come to accomplish in victory on our behalf. What would be ours available through him? What, what he would accomplish here? What he will accomplish when he comes again? It all points to Jesus. And that's the most loving thing God can do is to get our eyes off of stuff and to get our eyes off of self and to get our eyes off of things and say there's only one place your heart will ever be satisfied. Please don't have any other gods before me. God's not offended when we place other gods before him. He's broken hearted. He doesn't lose glory when we don't glorify Him. He'll be glorified so much so that the rocks will cry out His praise. We are the ones who lose out when we are not living for His glory. To live for a good thing and turn it into a God thing can be a deadly thing. No other gods before Him. It's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. I love... I love what Driscoll said. He said, if this is all about Jesus, then, then we look back at these Ten Commandments and, and we look back at this moment in history and what we see is that Jesus is the greater Moses because he alone fulfills the law. We see that Jesus is the greater leader because he didn't kill his enemies like Moses did. He let his enemies kill him. Jesus is the greater Passover lamb who was slain To remove God's wrath from us. To absorb God's wrath on our behalf. He's the greater firstborn son who died for our sin and none of his own. He's the greater pillar and cloud that leads us day and night. Jesus is the greater victor who defeated the the greater Pharaoh, Satan himself. Jesus is the great Savior who redeems not just millions from one nation in one place at one moment in history, but the Savior who redeems billions throughout all time until He comes again from every nation and every tribe and every language and every people. Jesus is the greater Redeemer, taking us to a greater promised land, the eternal kingdom of God. Jesus is the greater lawgiver who writes his law not on tablets of stone but on our new hearts that he himself has given us. 
that His own Spirit is growing, maturing, transforming to love Him enough and to trust Him enough to follow His instructions. To seek out and stamp out any lesser God who would rob Him of glory in our hearts. Because there's only room for one on the throne of our hearts. That's our Jesus. So where are you at with that today? I, I want to quickly talk through, uh, uh, my buddy Christianic gave this to me, and I'm going to call it our worship diagnosis this morning. And I want you to, to think through this introspectively for just a moment this morning. And then in our community groups this week, we'll sit in this a little bit longer Maybe not as a group, maybe internally, but I want us to really look within. We're going to call this our worship diagnosis on the throne of our hearts this morning. The first question I want you to ask yourself is who is truly in charge? I mean, who's really, really in charge? Whose will wins the day? Whose authority rules the day? Who do we really believe we answer to? Who is in charge? Number two, who gets my first and best energy? Who gets the best of me? My family? My career? My hobbies? Or my king? Who gets the best of me? Number three, who receives my highest praise? Who do I speak words of adoration about? My kids? My favorite musician or celebrity or influencer? Myself? Or the only one worthy to be praised? Next question, who do I count on the most? Who do I trust the most? The doctors? My spouse, my retirement portfolio, that next raise I think I'm about to get, what do I count on the most? Myself, I got this, I don't need anybody. Next, where do I look for purpose and joy? Where do I truly find my meaning? Where do I truly find a, a depth of satisfaction my purpose and my joy where do I look for wisdom where's the first place I go when I need wisdom outside of me Google a TED talk a grandparent a smart friend where do I look when I need wisdom and by the way we could really transplant the word wisdom there with where do I look when I need healing? Where do I look when I need direction? Where do I look when I need protection? Where do I look when I need life? Where do I run? And the final diagnostic question is this. Who do I thank? Where do I give my gratitude? Where do I express my thanksgiving? Is it to the giver of all good gifts? Or am I thanking the gifts for being gifts? Where's my gratitude lie? 
Because if your heart is like mine, if you're honest, I have a whole lot of answers to these questions other than the king of the universe. My heart is so prone to wonder. My heart is so prone to believe the lies of the lesser gods. But I believe there's only one who promises life. There's only one who satisfies our hearts. And this morning he's calling us to lay down all of our lesser gods and to acknowledge him for who 